Yep. You know, on 17, 14 through 19, where we're actually sent <coughs> into the world to bring good news. And uh, I'll go ahead and read that in, in John chapter 17, verse 22 uh, through 24. It says, The glory which you have given me, this is Jesus praying, priestly prayer. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there's a, we are sent, and we're sent um, with the authority of Christ as, as a church. We actually have uh, a delegated authority, just as humanity has a delegated authority over creation, the church has delegated authority over bringing eternal life to the world. Not that we are the, the bringer of that life, but we are united with Christ in communion and fellowship and are called and sent to bring that life to the world. Just as, as Christ has chosen us, he has chosen others, and we're called to participate in that. And Taking a look at that focus, uh, we come to the epilogue, and we actually, if you look at the way John is put together, um, there's the main body of the work, which begins in chapter 1, um, verse 19. So if you look at uh, the, the construction of how it's all put together, you have what they call the prologue, which is John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And then the main body of the work, which begins in chapter um, chapter 1, verse 19, and runs through the end of chapter 20, verse 31. And that, many people believe that was the, the original um, letter of John that was constructed as a whole, and that the uh, prologue was added because of circumstances at the time that the letter was circulating. So John had written down his eyewitness account, and he also had subsequent letters that he wrote down about his eyewitness account, which we read in 1 John and 2 and 3 John, as well as uh, the book of Revelation. So it, there's this, this witness that John brings, and he wants us in that witness um, to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing um, we may have eternal life in his name. That's what it says in John 20, uh, 31. It says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's a, a verse worthy of uh, committing to memory. Uh, a lot of other things John could have written, but, but this main body he wrote for a very specific purpose. Well, the, as that body of work was circulating among churches, um, because John didn't have the opportunity to go to every person on the earth, but he still was commissioned with uh, that eyewitness account getting out to the world. And we know that that's true because of the account in, uh, in chapter 20 that we read about with Thomas and that there is uh, an aspect of we, we are not eyewitnesses in the same sense that the apostles were or the disciples that actually walked with Jesus. They were there to testify in their day to a second generation of Christians. And so we're a second generation Christian. We, do, we have a secondhand witness. But nonetheless, that witness is true. And so John is a, is a firsthand witness, and he's putting that down. And as it was circulating, there were um, theologies developing around it in early Christianity about who the Christ was. And so the prologue is written to help us understand who is this man, Jesus, and how is he the Christ? And that's what we read in the prologue. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And then there's a whole development <coughs> from a theological perspective of uh, the nature of the Godhead. Who God is, and how God could become man and dwell among us. 
right? And how we could actually enter into communion with him. Well, when we get to the end of chapter 20, it seems like the work should be done. There was a correction to theology in the prologue. There's the main body of work um, that we would know, believe, and remain um, with Christ, that we would abide in him. Um, So you'd think they'd be done. But if you look at the historical circumstance of what was going on at the time, uh, this was written... When, does, when was John written? Does anybody know? The Gospel of John? Pardon? Yeah. So it was the last of the Gospels to be written uh, and circulated. And it was at a time when the church had, uh, was expanding through persecution. And that persecution involved Paul uh, taking the Gospel out on the various missionary journeys that he went on subsequently be imprisoned in Rome. He was released from that long-term imprisonment where he was imprisoned for a couple of years at Caesarea by the sea and then in Rome itself. And that's where we read some of the accounts of the, the prison epistles like Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, those, those letters that were written uh, in prison and then he was released. Had another uh, short period of missionary work where... Uh, He may have brought the gospel as far as uh, Spain, if you look geographically. And then he was subsequently arrested uh, for being uh, a Christian, for his testimony, because that was um, not allowed by the state at that point in time, or the nation. So the emperor, who at that time was Nero, um, didn't like Christians because even though Christians were tolerant of the religions of Rome and the gods of Rome, the the emperor demanded that people worship him as God, and Christians couldn't do that. And so they were tolerant, but they would never actually bow their knee to Nero, even though they would pay their taxes and they were great citizens. And so they were persecuted. And arrested as the leaders were folks like Peter and Paul. And so Peter became uh, one of the the great missionary apostles where uh, he took the word to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul, of course, did the same and then focused on the Gentiles and his latter ministry exclusively. Um, They were both arrested, thrown in prison. Um, Peter was crucified, is what extra-biblical literature tells us that he uh, while he was actually um, serving the church in Rome, he was arrested uh, and crucified and um, tradition would have us to understand that he was not crucified like Jesus but he was crucified upside down Um, whether that's true or not we don't know but we know he came to a horrific death as a martyr in Rome Uh, Paul, as a Roman citizen, was arrested, and uh, they were pretty much done with Paul at that point in time, so he wasn't uh, treated as good as he was in previous uh, arrests and imprisonments, which were brutal and horrible, Um, but he was subsequently beheaded as a Roman citizen. And all of that occurred in that period before the Roman temple, or not the Roman temple, the the Jewish temple was destroyed by Rome. In 70 AD. So it was in that period in uh, the 60s uh, AD that um, there would have been a great persecution of the church. They would have been experiencing a lot of turmoil. And they probably would have, uh, early seeds of heresy were coming in, which is why the prologue would have been added, as I mentioned. There was uh, um, false beliefs about who Christ was and so there you see an early form of Gnosticism creeping in, and the prologue addresses that. Um, but there was also a, 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 the persecution led people to question their faith and God's plan for the church. Right. So is this really what God planned if things are just so terrible? If uh, the world is so messed up and so broken and people are being killed for claiming that Jesus rose from the dead and that 
what he promises is eternal life, you would think that would be a good message. That if anything, the world would, would turn a deaf ear to it, but they wouldn't want to kill those that proclaim such a thing. I mean, there's a lot of things that you would kill a person for. Why would you kill a person for, for believing that there is eternal life? That just doesn't make sense logically. That's not the way the world works, right? So people were like starting to question, is this really what, what God has planned? This doesn't make any sense. So you're trying to interpret um, the kingdom of God from the perspective of the kingdom of the world. And so many believe that this um, epilogue of John was added by John and then uh, there are a few editorial comments in here by his followers at that time. And by, they weren't followers of John, but by the church that he was a part of, the elders in that church. Um, and that they were specifically, John was specifically writing to address this question of, did God, is this really God's plan? That he would send us out as sheep among wolves to be torn apart and crucified and beheaded and persecuted wherever you go, being the outcasts in the world. That's the context to the epilogue. So I'm going to go ahead and read through the epilogue and you're going to, you're going to see certain things are going to pop off the page. So pay attention to um, how, number one, this would have applied to the context that it was written to, the people in uh, 70 A.D., um, and how this would also apply to us as the church today. It says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came into the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw some charcoal fire, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and the fish placed on it. And bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now this was the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. The one 
who also would lean back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the saying went out among all the brethren that 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 disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if you want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself would, would the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. The last words of John. So, what kind of things popped off the page as we were reading through this? It's a holiday weekend. People are on break. <laughs> well, did the guys just go back to their regular occupation, fishing? Did they go back to their regular occupation of fishing? Um, that's interesting that they went back to their regular occupation of fishing. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Go back to what's familiar. Yep, so they went back to um, familiarity. They didn't know what else to do. Let me zoom in where they're at. So this takes place uh, up at the Sea of Tiberias. So Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee, which is right here. And so in the Sea of Galilee... Um, they were Tiberias, you'll see uh, Roman city was right here on this shore, so they uh, named the body of water after the, the major Roman city that was there, it's also called the, the Sea of Chinnereth um, or Lake of Chinnereth uh, which is also based on a city that was uh, along this shore in Gadara um, or we know it as the Sea of Galilee because it was the major body of water in that geographical region of Galilee. And where they were at was up here at the very north end. You'll see a kind of a long shoreline here, and I can blow it up even a little bit more. So you'll see uh, up here, there's, there's a, this is the Golan Heights, and these are high cliffs. There's kind of a, a rolling hills up here, and then there's the city of Bethsaida, which was a fishing village. And Peter was from there. And John was from there, and his brother James was from there, and Philip was from there. Nathaniel was not from there. Nathaniel was from Canaan. Canaan is over this direction. So what you see is they weren't just going back to what their previous occupations were, because Nathaniel would not have been with them if that was the case. If they were just going home and saying, wow, that was kind of an interesting event that just happened. Let's, uh, let's go home and think about that. That wasn't what was happening. But rather, if you read in the other gospel accounts, Jesus actually uh, told them that he would meet with them in Galilee. And we also know that he met with them twice in Jerusalem. Right? So on... The day of his resurrection, Sunday, um, April 5th, he appeared to the disciples behind closed doors without Thomas being present. We just read that, chapter 20. And then a week later, on a Sunday, he appeared again to the disciples behind closed doors in Jerusalem with Thomas present. But what we see is, is that these folks now are at a place where Jesus had instructed them to go, which was to Galilee, because that was the center of their ministry. When they were, if you look at how Jesus' ministry was uh, lived out in the, the three years period that we typically identify as his ministry, a good part of it was in Galilee. Um, that's somewhat unusual because... Uh, I say that's unusual because when we read through John, you'd think that he was spending all of his time in Jerusalem. And the reason why is because there were actually many tricks, treks between Galilee and Jerusalem. But if you read the other gospel accounts, it looks like he spent the first uh, two and a half years of his ministry in Galilee in the last six months in Jerusalem. That's not quite the case. He was actually moving back and forth between the two regions. 
but a lot of um, the revelation as, as far as supernatural works of healing and those types of things occurred in the area of Galilee. And the disciples were originally called in this area, in Galilee. The apostles that we know as the, the twelve, that were the eyewitnesses that would write, some of them would write the accounts. Um, they were the ones that, you know, their calling in life was to take this message out to the world. They were largely from this area. And so when they end up going to Galilee, because that's where Jesus said he would meet with them, they were anticipating seeing the Lord. But it didn't just happen that they took off and went from Jerusalem and they had to have some place to go. So Peter says, hey, y'all can stay at my house. We'll have a, you know, we'll have a sleepover until Jesus comes back here. Um, and so they go to the city of Peter, to Bethsaida. And they're fishing not far off of this spit of land here. In fact, it says that they're only about 100 yards out. So they, and if you look at the way that geography is in the lake, it's actually very deep right in here. Um, so they would have been able to cast their uh, nets. They would have had to have been fairly close to shore in order to cast their nets, and they would do two kinds of, of nets that they would drop. They would have uh, two boats, and they would drop, they would make a circle, like a pen, where they would trap the fish in. And so first they drop these nets that um, they have corks on the top, and they have weights on the bottom, and it's like a curtain net. And they would drop those down, and it would go to the bottom of the sea, and then what would happen is the boats would move closer together, and it kind of pulls the fish in. And then within that pool that they created, a walled pool, they would take um, these nets that they would cast. They're about uh, 10 to 15 foot, and they would kind of whip them up. I don't know how they do it. You, you, if you go to Israel, they'll show you how they cast a net. But um, they whip these things, and they throw them out such that they spread out, and then they drop. They have weights, and they encircle the fish that are trapped within this other netted area. And ultimately, they want to close, they want to pull those fish out, and they, and they sort them as they're pulling them on from these uh, cast nets, and then they throw the fish they don't want out, the little, little ones, and they keep the big ones, and they just keep closing that net until they've essentially finished their fishing. Well, they've been out all night, and they found nothing. <coughs> and this is just a time filler for them. It's like Peter says... You know, I'm gonna. I'm not just gonna sit here. Let's go out. Let's go fishing. And the others, even some of them who weren't fishermen, Nathaniel said, "Okay, I'll go along." So they've been out all night. They've been doing this fishing process. They've caught nothing at all. And as they're fairly close to the shore, and they're thinking, "Well, what do we do with our time now?" You know, they didn't catch anything. Um, someone on shore yells out to them, "Hey, did you catch anything?" They said, no, we don't have anything. So, well, throw your net, the, the uh, cast net, over on the right side of the boat. So that was outside the pen that they had made, right? And uh, so they throw the, the net out, and that net alone, just dropping down, caught a huge number of fish. And they were all keepers. And there were so many fish that they recognized that this, this was unusual. You know, somebody from shore looking out, how could they see a school of fish, right? So immediately John knows that, ah, that's the Lord, right? That's what, that's what we hear here. It says in verse uh, 5, so Jesus said to them, children, uh, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. So <clears throat> what would happen with these cast nets is they throw them out, um, and the, the weights sink down around the fish. Somebody's got to jump in the water, swim down, grab that net from the bottom, kind of seal it off, and pull it up. So they would be diving down to catch this, this cast net. Well, they would be stripped down to basically a loincloth so that they could jump in the water and swim. 
So it would be unusual for Peter to change if he was just jumping in to grab the fish, right? Which he would, he would do at one point. But he actually throws on his, his cloak and he jumps in the water and he's swimming for shore. Right? Because he recognizes, wow, this is the Lord. Let's, who cares about the fish? The other disciple came up in the little boat, but they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So John at that point said, well, yeah, it's a miracle, and yeah, that's Jesus, but let's at least get the fish on to shore. Right? So John's dragging him up. Peter, um, once they got there, uh, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land because he's a big burly guy. Right? I like to think of Peter, I like his uh, name in English. It would be Rocky Johnson. Because um, Peter means rock, and he was the son of John, so he's Rocky Johnson. And he's a big burly guy, big muscles, fisherman, right? It's a guy that you don't want to mess with. And he's the one drags the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So the first thing uh, I asked Karen, or I asked, is what, what kind of things popped off the page? And Karen said, well, um, they went back to fishing. Is that unusual? And I'm saying, no, that's not unusual. But here you see a detail that is unusual. 153 fish and the net wasn't torn. What's significant about that? Why does John leave this detail in there? Pardon? They didn't normally catch that many large fish. They didn't normally catch that many large fish. And if they did, it should have torn the net. Like it did the first time. Pardon? Like it did the first time. Like it did. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, interestingly, this was a cast net, so it was a smaller of the nets that uh, that they pulled this in, 153 fish. And uh, you'll see these nets aren't huge. To put 153 big fish in them, that's, that's a miracle, and have it not tear. So why do you suppose the circumstance of this is written to um, help people understand that God has a plan? And that that which he's called them to, no matter how difficult and no matter how demanding, no matter what it's going to cost, oh, by the way, you're going to get 153 fish and then that's not going to break. Why do you suppose that detail is there? Fishers of men. Fishers of men. They were called to be fishers of men. We know that from the other gospel accounts. They're called to do something really hard, but it's not impossible. Something really hard, not impossible. Expand on that one. Uh, once they were going to become fishers, man, that was stated the first time, and but that was breaking. And now, the Christ has gone from the cross. There's an eternal promise that has been made, and this is a symbolic representation of of, of salvation. How long it lasts, it won't break. Right. So. And I glossed over it earlier when you said uh, the net didn't break, not like the first time. So there's an account that we read about in the other uh, Gospels that isn't in John, that when uh, Jesus was manifesting himself to them, and again, there had been no, no fish caught, and Jesus told them where to throw the net. They threw the net, and there were so many that actually the net was breaking that's the, the account you're talking about. And I can find the cross-reference here, but I'll leave that as a homework assignment for you guys. Look it up. And so at that point in time, Jesus had not gone to the cross. In fact, he was in the, the process of helping um, those that would be called to take this message of life in Christ to the world. Um, he was in the process of helping them understand how God could become man and how the plan of salvation could actually be accomplished. Even though they didn't get it, they, they didn't get it up until the very end, right? They didn't get it until they saw the empty tomb. We read that a couple of weeks ago. John looked in, he saw it was empty, and Peter went in and saw that it was empty and that the grave clothes had been carefully folded and set aside. So it wasn't like somebody came in and sacked the tomb and, uh, and quickly took the body, stealing the body of Jesus. No, this was a... Um, 
where the grave clothes were carefully folded and set aside. And oh, by the way, there was an angel there too that the women saw. Right. So at that point, we read that John, after Peter gone in, went in and he saw that that this was no uh, random terrorist attack to steal the body, but actually was the fulfillment of prophecy, just as Jesus had said. And it said, and then he believed. So we know that it took them a while, even though they had seen all this stuff um, that Jesus had revealed, they didn't get it. But now he's gone to the cross, now he's uh, paid for all the sins of all humanity for all time, once for all. He has made an atonement, and that's something that we're studying through in Leviticus on Friday nights right now. Um, And at the end of that, he made it possible for humanity to um, be in communion with God once again. So we were separated in the garden of Eden by our sin. And ever since that point, up until when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, and it said he breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, up to that point, the communion with God had been severed. But what happened is, Jesus actually, as a high priest, took the the veil that separated the holy place, where we would bring um, our petitions, our prayers, um, the concerns of our life, and our worship of God. There's a, a holy of holies behind that, that only the high priest could go into. And he would offer the, the blood of a perfect sacrifice on the mercy seat of God. And we know that when uh, that, that area, the holy of holies, was separated from the holy place by a veil. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil in the temple was torn. And it was torn from top to bottom. So what that was telling us is that the separation between man and God had been removed. That salvation was actually now accomplished. And that the first thing that Jesus did in the first appearance behind closed doors is he communicated to them communion with God in the Spirit. That they received the Holy Spirit. And so there's this now fellowship that could occur. And now we have this after the fact, after the church has been out there in the world giving this testimony, being persecuted, John is telling a story that, oh, the third time that Jesus appeared to us. So the first time was about um, helping them to fully understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and what he had done, that he had actually accomplished eternal life. And that that eternal life was in him. He was the way, the truth, and the life. That no one could come to the Father except through him. So that meant there had to be relationship with him. There had to be communion with God in the Spirit in order for us to um, be in Christ and have the eternal life that is him, self. Right? That was the reason for the first visit. And the second visit was because there are going to be those that are going to be second-hand witnesses. Um, we are second-hand witnesses. We aren't first-hand witnesses. We didn't go to the, to the open tomb. But we are witnesses that Christ is raised from the dead because we have the Spirit of God within us that testifies that we are His children. Therefore, we go out into the world and we're giving the testimony that the, that the apostles gave as first-hand witnesses. The second visitation was where Thomas was present. And Thomas had to, to, had to actually see to believe. He said, I need to put my finger in, in your hand. I need to put uh, my hand in your side to know that this is really you, that you really died. This isn't a myth. And that you are really raised from the dead. Thomas had to see that. He's, he was a guy uh, from Missouri, right? He was, it's a show-me state in Missouri. It's like, I need to see it to believe it. That's Thomas. And, and what did Jesus say? Jesus said in verse 27 of, of uh, John chapter 20, he said, uh, Jesus said to Tom, Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. 
Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. In other words, Thomas got it. Just like John got it. Just like Peter got it. These first-hand witnesses, all of a sudden it all made sense. And even we would find out that subsequent to this, Paul, who was not in this group of witnesses, would have an eyewitness account with Jesus himself. And when he would declare the gospel, which we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses, um, verse 3, it says, this is the gospel that Jesus, let me read it so that I don't misquote it. I want to say Christ. Um, so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, it says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So he gives an evidence that it was according to the prophecies that God had given about both himself and that which was his plan of salvation from the beginning of time. Scriptures, and that he was buried. In other words, he saw that Christ died for our sins and he was really dead because you don't bury a live guy. And that Roman soldiers had their job was to make sure he was really dead and that he was really in the tomb. So... The evidence is that he was it was according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then there are the eyewitnesses. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren uh, at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So we understand that there are first-hand witnesses to this account, and that when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he gets it, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. So that second appearance is not for the sake of the eyewitnesses, although Thomas was an eyewitness. It was for the sake of those who would believe based on their testimony. It would be the secondhand witnesses. This third appearance is for something else. First one, so that they would get it, first-hand witnesses. Second one, so that they would um, understand that they had to communicate that and that there would be those that would come that would believe as second-hand witnesses. They would believe their testimony. They would not be unbelieving, but believing. The third one is about discipleship. It's all about making sure that they understood that God's plan wasn't um, for them to be disconnected uh, babes uh, left in the world alone, but rather that they were sent to the world for the purpose of discipleship. We understand that in the Great Commission, to teach, make disciples, and to bring um, those that God has called into his kingdom through their witness. The, the third one is about discipleship and I guess we'll call it mission. It's about going out into the world. And when you see that that net was not broken, that tells us that this is not something that we have to worry about in our own strength. So even though we're called to go and to give our lives fully for those that it's, are called and in God's church and for those that are called that are not yet in God's church. That we're not without power. This is a supernatural event. That the church moving through the world is because God um, has ordained it. So today we're uh, faced with the most rapidly expanding um, religion today is not Christianity, but Islam. And most of the world is Christian, but the second biggest religion is Islam. And what we may see in our lifetime is that reversed. We may see Islam become the uh, predominant world religion and Christianity become second, or even maybe third, or maybe even fourth. And the reason why is because we're going to see a, a change in the, uh, the acceptance of Christianity as a state religion. We're already seeing it in the United States. 
And the president of this country declared it. He said, this is not a Christian nation. Rather, we're pluralists. We believe that all of these religions are, are, uh, have a place here. <clears throat> and that we don't operate according to uh, what, they, what used to be called Judeo-Christian ethic. That's not the, the basis of our society anymore. And you see the result of that. That's just one country. It happens to be a very powerful and influential country. But you're seeing it in other parts of the world too. And uh, so you're going to see that Christianity is going to become, uh, it's going to fall out of favor. And when that occurs, when a persecution occurs, you're going to see where the real Christians actually are. Not just the people who were born into a Christian home and uh, because they were born into that religion, that, they're that by osmosis. So the analogy that I, uh, when, when I was in Jerusalem, I went into the Christian quarter. You'd think it's Christian, right? So I go into the Christian quarter. I go to a shop, and I ask the guy about his Christianity. I said, so you're in the Christian quarter. You're from a Christian heritage. Tell me about your Christianity. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. My, uh, my father was Christian. My grandfather was Christian. In fact, I can trace my Christian roots all the way back to the first century. And uh, it's like, that's pretty impressive. He didn't know Christ. He just had a uh, religious nationality that we called Christian. He didn't know who Jesus was. That's what's um, going to be shaken out. The wheat and the chaff or the wheat and the tares are going to be separated out at some point here in the future. Because Jesus said that would happen. And uh, when that occurs... Um, you're going to find out where the real Christians are. And it's going, to be a hard, it's going to be a harder place. It's going to be like it was in this time, where they would actually be martyred for their faith. Not that we'll necessarily be martyred, but we'll certainly experience persecution. And some people already are experiencing extreme persecution. And Jesus wants us to know that in the midst of that, it is according to God's ordained plan and that there is supernatural power to support us in that. That you're going to have a catch that is unheard of and that none are going to be lost. Doesn't that kind of sound like other things that Jesus said? You know, that those that the Father has given him are firmly in his hand. They're not going to slip out. That he's got a sure grip and that grip is an internal grip. And so we see that happening um, with these Peter, with these people. And Peter uh, gets that, right? Because this is part of the in-group, first-hand witnesses. And he gets that. John gets that. And to the point where when they finally get the fish up near the shore, Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. In other words, the knowing and the believing was no longer the issue. It was all about the abiding. It was all about what it meant to be a Christian, to walk as one called by Christ. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. So this is the, the, uh, the classic fisherman's breakfast, or in this part of, of the world, that's you know, what you'd eat for breakfast, fish and bread. It says, now this... Uh, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So again, we see it's very purposeful. Um, John is helping people to understand what's going on in their time based upon what happened immediately after Jesus was raised from the dead, his appearances to the witnesses, before his ascension to sit at the right hand of God. Um, and then there's this... Um, Focus on Peter. Why do you suppose there's a focus on Peter? So I say there's a focus on Peter because what comes after breakfast is Jesus and Peter take a walk and walk along the shore. And Peter's got, got a lot of a lot of business to do with the Lord. Right? And he wants some some one-on-one time because he's got some serious questions. Why do you suppose that is? The denials. Yeah. So Peter, less than 12 hours after his claim that he would, he would die 
for Jesus. He actually cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, you know, taking up arms uh, against Jesus' arrest. He would deny him three times. And we understand that Peter, in that moment, understood humility in a way that, that few people do. He was, he was crushed. He wept. Big, burly, Rocky Johnson broke down and cried. And he didn't just cry, he wept. And so, he was a broken man. Now, here's a broken man, and even though he's still, you know, I'm 100% for you, Lord, and he's waiting for Christ to appear in Galilee, um, he still has a lot of reservation about what he's called to do. So he's walking with the Lord, and the Lord, after they finish breakfast, he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's talking about um, the other apostles. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, tend my lambs. So this is the commission that Peter's given be a good shepherd, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. It's all about what we're called to do and, and, and how we're to go about doing that. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. So you see the three questions about um, Peter's heart condition and his opportunity to testify to that. And some people will point out that uh, the underlying language here uses two different words for love in the Greek. Um, there's actually four different words that could have been used. Um, there's, that, it's not, I don't believe it's important that there is a different word used in the third time uh, from the first two times because John would normally use variation of words and we see that in other parts of, of uh, different writings. So I don't think that this has to do with the depth of Peter's heart condition but the fact of the heart condition that he has a heart that is um, fully devoted to Christ. And the fact that on the third time he gets irritated is because the third time that God is saying, are you really fully devoted to me? He's reminding Peter of the three times that Peter failed him. When Peter was asked that before by other people, not Jesus, he said, I don't know the man. And, and so when Jesus asked him the third time, so really, do you love me? Peter knows what that's about. He also knows that um, this is the Christ, the Son of God, that's reaching out to him and giving him a place in God's plan. So it's an invitation to participate. So here's a guy who had been, in many ways, we would think of as disqualified because of his apostasy, although he wasn't as uh, apostate as some would would confess later but nonetheless he he knew that he was broken and he was not he could not bring to God anything that would merit um, and bring worth from his own self to God that it was totally from God and yet God was inviting him to serve and he gave him this threefold invitation to emphasize it it doesn't matter that you three times denied me because I'm still calling you. Do you love me? That's what he said. And he just wanted Peter to, to wholly own that. And then when Peter wholly owns it, when he demonstrates, yeah, I have the heart condition. It isn't the depth of the heart condition. It's that I have the heart condition. Then Jesus says, okay, feed my sheep and my lambs. So he's called. And just so that we understand that, that uh, as John is going through, um, get adding this uh, additional uh, epilogue that is all about what we're called to do, 
he wants wants to understand that um, this wasn't just uh, time bound; that it's it's outside of. So this is a uh, these are principles. So we actually were talking about principles in our Bible study on Friday night. Five different types of principles. Principles are timeless truths. They're not bound by culture or era. There are, there are timeless truths in here about um, the plan of God, the power of God, the calling of God, the invitation to participate in his plan, to actually be his hands and feet, to be those second-hand witnesses. So we have these, these timeless truths and to, to help people understand that, yeah, this is a timeless truth. He's going to deal with one of the um, problems of the day, the problems of the death of Paul and the death of Peter. So he says, truly, truly, I, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Right? So that's the message. Follow me. He was letting Peter know that it was going to cost him everything. And John reflects back on this, because John is writing this after Peter has died, this epilogue. And he's saying, yeah, Jesus told him that this was going to happen. This is part of the plan. It's going to cost him everything. But what was the command? The command was, follow me. It's all about your heart as a disciple. And then Peter, in Peter classic style, turns around and says, he sees the disciple who Jesus loved following them, that is John, the one who leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Right? So this guy who had inside information, Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? <laughs> you're, you're telling me I'm going to die on a cross what about John right? Jesus said to him if I want him to remain until I come what is that to you you follow me so it's clarification what's important here what's the timeless truth it isn't bound in the circumstance of the day therefore the saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die but only if I want him to remain until I come what is that to you so then people, as this, this story was retold, John had lots of stories, right? Um, it, it was retold, people would say, oh, John's going to be alive until Christ comes. So all we have to do is watch John, and as long as he's still breathing, we're okay. No, that's not what was being said at all. What was being said was, follow me. That's the whole point. And John wanted to make sure that that was clear. You know, he got boiled in oil and all sorts of other stuff. Um, as part of his persecution and he was the last of the apostles to die but nonetheless um, he understood that it was about giving his all to his last breath for the Lord he says this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things we know that his testimony is true that's where we're going to end both John and our uh, time this morning um, we know that this testimony is true. That's what it means to be a second-hand witness. So now, what do you do with that? Do you stay a babe, or do you grow up and become an adult and take the word to the world? That's the challenge. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for opportunity to, um, to come to you this morning. Lord, as we read in the Psalm 84, um, Lord, I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in your house than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather um, celebrate in your temple, in your church, who you are. I'd rather worship you, knowing who you are, what you've done for me, what you've done for the whole world. Lord, um, help me to never forget all of the things that you've done in my life to bring me to you and to allow me to participate in your plan. I thank you that as broken as I am, you've given me opportunity to serve. And Lord, I know that everybody in here has a story and everybody in here is, uh, could tell it about how you brought them 
to their needs, just as you brought Peter to his, and how you've redeemed them, and the great cost of that. Lord, I just ask that you would remind them this week, and that you would help us to stand in your strength, just as they had the net cast in, in faith, and that supernaturally you provided. Lord, we just ask for that provision, not just for ourselves, but the provision that you would give us strength and courage to to go into the world, not be of the world, but in the world, Lord. And thank you for this. And we ask that you provide for us, that you protect us. And Lord, we're so thankful for your incredible uh, love and service towards us. Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as your word goes out to the congregation. We ask that it accomplish that which you intend for it to do. And Lord, we ask that you keep us and bring us to the next week if that's your will. And Lord, we ask you to come quickly. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. We pray in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.